So I'm going to introduce Emma. Um, Emma's an artist based in London and Bergen. Um, she's a research fellow in fine art at the University of Bergen, Norway, and convener of the Africa cluster of the Another Roadmap School. Uh, she works in a wide range of media formats and contexts. Um, so, uh, one of the recent uh, um, exhibitions that she's uh, going to talk about today is um, an exhibition that was uh, co-commissioned by Angelica Kojo and myself at the showroom and co-curated with the new director of the showroom, Elvira Janganiosa. Um, so um, that is why Kojo and Anjali will join back again after Emma's presentation. Um, Emma's um, been in many uh, different exhibitions and projects internationally, including Bergen Assembly in 2019. She was in the 10th Berlin Biennial last summer, We Don't Need Another Hero. Um, and other projects uh, include um, A Thousand Roaring Beasts, Display Devices for a Critical Modernity at the Centre Centro Andalus de Arte Contemporaneo in uh, Seville. Um, must make your death public. You must make your death public at De Apple in Amsterdam in 2016. And uh, she recently published an essay, Margaret Trial's School of Art, or How to Keep the Children's Work Really African, which was uh, published last year by the Palgrave Handbook on Race and the Arts and Education. Emma, welcome. Um, I'm, I say in the program that I'm going to talk about promised lands, but I'm not really. Um, but if you have any questions about the video that is part of the exhibition that accompanies the festival, I'm happy to answer those after the, this talk. Um, I'm going to be talking instead, as Emily indicated, um, about the piece of work that they commissioned. So I'm talking about my work in front of the people who commissioned it, um, who I actually have also known for a very long time. And um, from before I, in the case of Kojo and Anjali, actually, from before the time that I entered the discursive and economic space of contemporary art. Um, so to just give a little bit of background, um, I was invited at the, I think, October, November of, of 2017 um, to participate, to attend a meeting in Berlin um, that was organized by the curators Annette Busch and Marie-Hélène Goodbelet um, for a project called Women on Aeroplanes. Um, this title comes from a Kojo Lang novel, um, and the project, uh, Women on Aeroplanes, was the, uh, one of the outcomes of a preceding research and exhibition project called After Year Zero at the House of World Cultures in Berlin that was looking at the moment of independence from formal colonial rule and beginning to think about what happened afterwards. Uh, in the reflections that the curators made um, following After Year Zero, they wondered why they had featured so few women uh, in their exhibition. And this was strange to them, given that in almost every single case, women and organized groups of women played a very key role in 
achieving independence from formal colonial rule. So this project came into being. I think its primary initial focus was um, looking at film, but this then expanded. Um, the Women on Aeroplanes has had iterations in Berlin, in Lagos, in Poland, and in London. I was invited to attend the meeting in Berlin, and I more or less warned that I wasn't really someone who had done a lot of work on women necessarily, and I wasn't really someone who had spent a lot of time thinking about the moment of uh, anti-colonial organizing. A lot of my work had previously been uh, engaged with the period of formal colonial rule, particularly in East Africa. But I brought to the table, if you like, a long-standing engagement with history and with historical materials and I, with thinking around questions of how the historical record is constructed, um, what, what falls within and without it. Um, in this sense, I have a long engagement with questions of the archive in the Foucauldian sense of the laws which govern that which can be said. And that then encompasses questions of the voice, of narrative, of um, mnemonic technologies, so technologies of memory, um, public memory, and beyond that, um, or I suppose on a slightly more meta level, questions of hegemony and the institution in a very broad sense. So when um, Emily and Kojo eventually, after this meeting in Berlin, invited me to, um, to imagine a project for the London iteration of Women on Aeroplanes, I, being someone who tries to think fairly contextually, thought, well, London is historically one of the most important centres of organizing, of political organizing, of activism, and um, then there will have been women here. It might be interesting to look at um, or to try and find out about a woman um, who had been, who had played an important role in the City of London, and it was through this, really, um, that I, in, I, by through this research, that I first really learned about um, Amy Ashwood Garvey. And even though she's not here, I will take this moment just to say a thank you to Dr. Nidia Swabi, whose essay on um, Amy Ashwood Garvey and diasporic social spaces is really what turned me on to this woman. And um, I'd also like to thank Nadia because she was incredibly generous with me in her research which she's been doing for many years, and in making some of her contacts available to me. I think um, the, the collaborative um, aspect of this kind of work is something that's very important, and the ways in which it connects with communities. Um, I'll say something a little bit more about that in a minute. So I, 
the timescale for this project was incredibly short in comparison with the way in which I generally work or prefer to work. So going from an invitation in December 2017 to an exhibition opening in October 2019 was like supersonic travel for me. And um, particularly because it took a long time for... Um, the funding to come into place. So trying to work out what I was going to do and how I was going to do it was something that remained very provisional for a very long time. Um, the, the first challenge really is that Amy Ashwagavi is someone who is not very widely known anywhere um, outside of some very um, specific communities of interest. And even though she, she was a major presence in London on and off between the 1920s and the 1950s, there is very little information about her that's actually available in the UK. Um, and most of the material relating to her is in the US or in a little bit in the Caribbean. And most of it is, with, is held by in collections, in archival collections that were um, that are devoted to her ex-husband, Marcus Garvey, to whom she was only married for about three months. Um, so it was there was this a major part of what I had to do was to try and find information about this woman. So I went on this very madcap journey last year, um, visiting archives in the US, in Jamaica, and in Trinidad. Um, and also, I made a, a failed attempt to find her grave. And also, it turned out, a failed attempt to find her papers. So one of the kind of, one of the guiding principles of my approach, which perhaps was driven by time, um, but also, I think, driven by the core questions of women on aeroplanes, which was how and why do women disappear from the historical records of, or the mainstream historical records of independence, of independence, and in the case of Amy Ashwagavi, also civil rights movements. Um, and then there's a sub-question there, which is how women of color disappear from feminist feminist movements, um, because she was also active in those, was I tried to organize my, my inquiry around um, the moments or instances of disappearance. So I tried to look at or try to pinpoint moments or instances that where, where this disappearance is enacted or reproduced. One very small example um, would be to do with acts of, um, with acts of naming um, when it comes to archival collections. Uh, there, is, uh, there is one of the archives I visited which has a video of Amy Ashwagavi being interviewed. I went there specially to watch this video because I knew of no other place which had any kind of audiovisual recording of her. And uh, it was very clear to me looking at this video that the footage had been shot 
in, under, in a television studio. It had been shot under professional conditions. And I was very surprised that the um, database record said that they didn't know the name, of the, the, the name of the interviewer or the date or place of interview. But I, I was convinced this couldn't really be true because it looked like TV. And um, then in another archive, I found, I think it's probably come up already, I found this poster that she herself had created to try and get um, speaking speaking gigs when she was in, New, in the US in 1968 and it said look for her on Gil Noble's Like It Is. Now I had never heard of Gil Noble but I went off and you know used our friend the internet and discovered that Gil, Noble, um, Gil Noble's show Like It Is was possibly the most important um, television show for the African-American community in the US for, a, for decades and that there was not one significant political or academic figure who did not appear at some point on his program. And, and, I, and therefore Amy Ashwood Garvey is part of this lineage, she's part of the history of that like it is and the work that Gil Noble did. I contacted uh, the archive and I said, I think I know where this comes from. I, this is, look, I've just found this poster um, which says like it is. And, you, you know, if you're an African-American of a certain age, particularly one who works in archives of African-American history, I don't imagine that you don't know who Gil Noble is. I mean, this is me saying this to you. This is not what I wrote in my email to the archivists. Um, and, and, they, and I said also, there's, there's this newspaper article as well, so which shows that this, this program did actually was actually screened, and they this information hasn't been taken up by them. So what this means is that um, anyone researching Gil Noble, and I think a lot of people do, um, is never going to know that Amy Ashwagavi was on his program, and it means that um, this woman is cut off. From within through archival practices, um, from the uh, from other histories in which she was actually participant. Um, this is one small example. Other ways that um, people like Amy Ashwagavi um, disappear is her the fact that she was completely unable to publish. Uh, she spent most of her life writing and trying to get books published and failing to do so. This seems to be a very um, important thing to do if you want to be quote-unquote remembered. Um, I think also having children helps, seems to have, because then you have people who will carry on your memory. This is something that came up, I think, briefly in the discussion about Julian Eastman and um, having children and passing things on. So, for example, the second wife of um, Amy, of Marcus Garvey, who was also called Amy, um, who had been the bridesmaid at the first wedding, uh, she had two sons, and um, they then, and she, um, Amy Jack Garvey, spent her life um, working on her collection of um, Marcus Garvey material, and they were able to carry this on. Amy never had a family of her own. Um, so... This is just two small things that I would, um, I'm pulling out from many, um, many, from many kind of historical instances that appeared in this. And 
I think the other thing that I, I tried to do um, was also to incorporate into the presentation um, accounts of my own research experiences, which were also indicative of this. So, for example, the Schomburg, um, another was, um, which I've given away the name now, it's the Schomburg Centre, who don't care that Amy Ashwagavi um, was on Gil Nobles like it is. Um, the other would be um, the very interesting and in some ways completely terrifying attempt that I made to find her grave in Kingston, Jamaica, um, and various other things. So this is one... Um, so I brought all of these materials in what um, I think it was Elvira very generously described as a temporary repository. Um, to, she invited me to use the gallery as a temporary repository for the research and to think about it as a working space. Um, the series of images that have just come up are a quite interesting um, reflection of that because I found this image in the library also at the Schomburg Centre and they knew nothing about it and um, they didn't know where it was taken or what the circumstances were but it's it seemed like, it somehow looked to me like it had been shot in London. Um, I don't know how, this was an interesting question that I started to ask myself over the course of this research, is how do I know, how do I tell the age of a photograph? But it somehow, it really, or the location, but it somehow really looked like London. And I had this feeling that if I brought this picture to London, um, that someone might know something about it. And the historian Marika Sherwood, um, I, anyway, I'm going ahead of myself. So I made this poster, um, which I think has just been up, um, which had this photograph front and back. And, um, and then on the bottom, it has a list of all the organizations um, um, founded by and for women of color in the UK that we knew of by the time of, at the time of publication. And the aim was, this was free, a, free, um, a free poster to take away from the gallery, and it was a way to disseminate the image um, and maybe find out more about it. And just one week after the exhibition opened, um, Marika Sherwood, who is a historian based in the UK, another incredibly generous person, um, wrote to me and said, I have the article, it's from the West Indian Gazette, which was published by Claudia Jones. Um, and, and it was, the article is entitled, We Thank the Women, and is a wonderful article um, in which they hold an event, I think in Kilburn Town Hall in 1960 something, I can't quite remember now, where they, the group, they've come together um, on All Africa Women's Day to talk about how, this is, you know, sort of 50 years ago, how the role of women in the struggles against colonial rule and against apartheid is not being properly appreciated and supported. So it was this, so I then had to, um, I then took upon the, myself the responsibility to change that area of the exhibition to incorporate the new information. And that's something that I have tried to be responsive to. Um, it was on for four months. It closed at the end of January. Um, I think, how are we doing for time? It's for 20 minutes. I thought I had more to say. Um, <laughs> so let me just go back to my notes quickly. Um, what have I missed out? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the one of the big challenges that I I think I faced with this particular um, endeavor in comparison to previous has been that I usually work on material that people don't care about, um, where the stakes are quite low. So this means that you. I'm able to get quite a lot of access because people are very relaxed because it's not really a big deal. Um, at most, people might be a bit sort of puzzled as to why I care, but that's sort of fine. Um, but what was very interesting about this project and I think has really set me a set of challenges um, is that it seems somehow um, in 2018, in 2019, to connect with a series, with a, with a set of contemporary political urgencies. Um, I think this is also an, uh, a ref, uh, something that um, Kojo and Anjali, um, I said I think more eloquently than me, in, in, their, in, their, in their articulation of the work they've done um, on the work of Julius Eastman, but that um, in, in 20, in, you know, again at this moment in time, the, the work of people like Amy Ashwagavi, the the practices of political organizing, the um, and in her case, highly interdisciplinary practices of organizing, are um, something that are being thought about, thought with, and taken up by communities of activists in Europe, in North America, in all sorts of different places, and this has this produced. Uh, or has produced for me a different set of questions around what making an exhibition is, what it's for, and what my responsibility is in terms of dealing of um, working with this material. Um, so, for example, um, and this is something that I, I still find quite daunting, is that at the moment, this, this is possibly the largest repository of material about Amy Ashwagavi that is publicly accessible um, because it comes from so many different archives, it comes from so many different places, um, but, and, but it's all together in one place. And if somebody, if someone um, wants to work on this woman and her work, this is a place that they can do this. And I think that's one of the things I hoped was happening in the gallery, that people were able to spend their time looking at things and, um, and, and to take up the references and take up the material. But trying, I now have to take very seriously the question of the afterlife of this exhibition, the afterlife of this material, and how it can be put to use within political life. And that's not something that I've... I mean, which is not to say that the space of contemporary art or that bringing this material into the space of, collect, of, of contemporary art doesn't have a, um, a, a political use value, if you like, because um, that's absolutely not the case, but that there are other things that might or, or might or ought or could might happen with this material that extend beyond the, the, the time frame of the exhibition and beyond the discursive context of contemporary art. And I'm trying now to think about that a little bit more seriously um, 
I think because that's also to do with the, um, what kinds of constraints, possibilities and also constraints, come with bringing this material into specific discursive fields. So I think this is something that I will continue to ponder on for some time and to try to find ways to think about and to work with. Um, I'm trying to maintain and expand the discussions and the the relationships that I've developed through working on this material. Um, and that's nothing which I haven't done before, um, but I think this somehow has a different sort of, um, there's a different kind of tension that's somehow at play. Um, I think the only other thing I would like to really um, share at this point um, is two things, really. Um, not one thing, two things. Um, is that I don't think... I mean, the title of this session is Setting the Record Straight. And um, I don't think that's quite what I consider myself to be doing. Um, in the sense that setting the record, it's a definite article, it's one record. And it's straight. And I don't, and I think those, those speak to a kind of um, nor, a sort of normative monolog monological idea of, um, of history and how histories are taken up, um, produced, reproduced. One of my favorite words in English is remember because it's re Membering, putting something back together, um, and this is something that happens in in different contexts and different places all the time. Highly socially contingent, highly culturally contingent. Um, I think it's more. I don't think that. I think it's more about. Well, for me, my position is I'm more interested in how certain kind of histories, certain kinds of stories about the past come to be written and how they become authoritative. Um, and in, in the relationship between the ideological and the pragmatic and the arbitrary in those processes, because they're, they are all at play at some level, the conscious and unconscious levels, um, whether we, I mean, on a conscious level, one very iconic example would be the, um, the liberation of Paris um, in 1945, when um, all the, the, the TV news cameras came to Paris to record the parades of um, soldiers who were liberating the city and the, the armies, um, the allies deliberately took a decision to keep all of the soldiers of color out of the city so that they did not feature in the historical record of the liberation of the city, even though they had been there. So this is a very de deliberate decision. Um, Others can be quite arbitrary or, or purportedly pragmatic, like we need to move this statue from here to here, so we need to take this bit off the top because it's too big and it will block something else out. Um, I'm talking here about the Memorial to the Women at War, which is in the city of London, which meant that um, because of this 
because it had to be moved because of, of money, of, for money, economic reasons. Um, there are no figurative depictions of women in active service in defence of the British nation. Um, so there's always, this is something which I find very fascinating. Um, and in thinking about how, um, and, and yeah, I think it's it very fascinating how these processes happen and what, how can one productively intervene or pick holes or pull threads out of what, on one level, what everybody knows. Um, the last thing I want to say is um, where the title of the, of the talk comes from. The title, Carrying Yours and Standing Between You, um, is also um, the title of the, this exhibition. Um, and it comes from... It's a quote from Amy Ashwood Garvey. It's from a quote from Amy Ashwood Garvey, who was one of the co-organisers of the International um, Association of Friends for Abyssinia, who met in the restaurant that she ran in London, restaurant and nightclub that she ran in New York, um, sorry, New Oxford Street in London in the 1920s and early 30s. And when Italy invaded um, Abyssinia in 1935, they organized a mammoth demonstration in Trafalgar Square. And um, this is quite an interesting example of the way in which history, um, history can be mainstream or normative history can be written by images because uh, the, the Getty has no images of her speaking. The Getty archive, which is the kind of mother load or death star of um, the photographic archive, um, they, they have no images of her speaking. They have images of men speaking at this um, event they have um, they have a photograph that may of a, a man talk a young man who may or may not be CLR James I'm still trying to figure that out and but there is another archive in Ohio of all places where they have a photograph of her speaking but what she said on that day um, apparently hers according to the newspapers was the, the speech that got the biggest cheers and she says um, you speak of the white man's burden, but we are carrying yours and standing between you and fascism. And this, I think, is a really incisive... I mean, for me now, I read this as a really incisive reflection of the position that women like women of colour like Amy Ashwood Garvey... Um, have taken so stand, carrying yours and standing between you and the abyss, or fascism being the abyss. But this betweenness and this burdenness doesn't um, doesn't translate into a certain kind of um, visibility or acknowledgement of agency within normative heroic modes. And um, I think this is, this, is, this is a very interesting discussion that I'm having with Nadia um, at the moment and with other people that she works with, is thinking about other kinds of activism um, and how, those, how that activism is codified or um, interpreted um, or erased within, um, within 
normative modes of narration of political struggle. So I think I'll stop there, if that's okay, Emily. Thank you very much. <laughs>